Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Ruth. We're finishing the chapter today. We're going to be looking at verses 13 through 22. As you're turning there, I, I was thinking about how kids love to be told stories. My boys could sit on the couch with me and gladly have me read book after book to them until my voice box exploded. And that love of stories that we have as kids does not end when we grow up. We still love to read books. And if we don't like to read books, we like to watch movies. So we love stories, whether it's in one form or another. And the greatest storyteller who ever lived is God. And God does not write his stories with a pen on sheets of paper or with a camera on a movie screen. When you're God, you get to use a far more interesting medium than that. Because God is the creator, and because he is sovereign, God is able to write his stories upon the pages of time, upon the screen of history. All of his stories are true, and he is still writing. He is writing right now as you and I sit here, and as his creatures under his sovereign rule, each one of us has a place in his story that he is writing. And as you know, the great hero of this story that God is still writing is, of course, Jesus Christ, the one whom God's great story revolves around. And as you and I are sitting here and taking our place in God's story, we always need to remember that we need to consider who we are in relation to the hero of the story, Jesus Christ, because it's our relation to him that tells us what our significance will be in this story that God is writing. If we remain the enemies of this great hero, the Lord Jesus, we will find ourselves facing the wrath of God. But if we are reconciled to this great hero through his death and his resurrection and through our faith in him, then we will find ourselves enjoying the blessed presence of God in heaven forever. As we come to the end of the book of Ruth, we are finishing our reading of a tiny little piece of God's story, yet it is a very important piece because it helps us to understand better the hero of the story, the Lord Jesus himself. And as we wrap up this book, there are two elements of this little piece of God's story that is going to help us understand our Savior better. And those two, little, those two pieces in this little bit of the story is a precious son, who we're going to see in verses 13 to 17, a precious son, and a purposeful genealogy, which we will see in verses 18 to 22. So let's first look at this precious son. Just to catch us up to where we are a little bit, remember last week, verses 11 to 12, Boaz had committed to redeem uh, Naomi's family and Ruth herself. And in response to that commitment, we saw in verses 11 and 12, the ten elders and all the people who had gathered in the meantime, they pray a blessing upon Boaz. And verses 13 to 17 are giving us the results of that commitment from Boaz and the results of the prayers of the witnesses that we read about in verses 11 and 12. We're going to see what is the outflow of what we've covered so far in chapter 4. So let's read verse 13 again. It says, So Boaz took Ruth 
and she became his wife, and he went to her. And the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. So true to his word, Boaz marries Ruth, which means that Ruth has gone from what to what? She's gone from a Moabitess foreigner. Remember back in chapter 2, verse 13, when she was talking to Boaz, she said, I am one of your maidservants, though I am not like one of your maidservants. She was on the bottom rung of society, but she's gone from that to the wife of Boaz. Ruth is now at rest. And who was seeking that throughout this story? Naomi was seeking that. Remember in chapter 1, she said, May the Lord show loving kindness to you as you have shown to the dead and to me. She sought that for Ruth in, at the end of chapter 2 when she came up with this plan, or rather the, the beginning of chapter 3. Remember she asked Ruth, Shall I not seek rest for you? That is what Naomi has been seeking. And finally, Ruth has it. She is at rest. She is married to Boaz. And apparently, Ruth, in verse 13, conceives a child very early in her marriage, on the first try, it seems. There's no indication in verse 13 that it took months or years for her to get pregnant. And when you consider her previous marriage to Malan, which chapter 1, verse 4 indicated was probably about 10 years she was married to that man, and she had no children with him, the fact that she gets pregnant immediately is, is quite significant. And in verse 13, the narrator tells us why that happened. He says, and the Lord enabled her to conceive. We know from Scripture, God is the one who is sovereign, even over the opening and the closing of the womb for his own good purposes. Here, God acts to provide a child, and he is going to cause this child to accomplish two things. First, he is going to carry on the name of Naomi's dead husband and dead sons. And second, God is going to cause this child to be the means by which the witnesses' prayers in verses 11 and 12 come true. That is what God is accomplishing through this child that he enabled Ruth and Boaz to conceive. Then, as the witnesses had blessed Boaz, remember that's what they did in verses 11 and 12, so here the women of Bethlehem bless Naomi. We're going to see that in verses 14 to 15. They are blessing Naomi. And it's in these two verses that we find things coming full circle for Naomi. Remember back to chapter 1, turn back to chapter 1. There we saw the emptying of Naomi, the deprivation of all the blessings that she was experiencing through the death of her family. And remember how she came back from Moab to Bethlehem. In chapter 1, who was it who talked so excitedly about Naomi when she returned? Verse 19 of chapter 1. All the city was stirred because of them, and the women said, Is this Naomi? And then what did, how did Naomi respond? She basically told them off. Don't call me that. Why? Because her name means what? Anybody remember? What does Naomi mean? Pleasant. That's right. She said, Don't call me that. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very 
bitterly with me. In the aftermath of Naomi's tragic loss of her husbands and sons, she couldn't bear to hear others speak her sweet name because it was, it was so contrary to her experience at that point. She didn't want people to call her a name that didn't seem to fit her. But here in chapter 4, as these women bless Naomi, there's no pushback from Naomi. There's no pushback because she is no doubt overwhelmed with a sense of blessing from the hand of God. Let's read verse 14 of chapter 4. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who has not left you without a Redeemer today, and may his name become famous in Israel. Again, recall chapter 1 when Naomi had felt that redemption was far from her. She obviously had no hope. That's why she told her daughters-in-law to go back, that she was a dead end if they followed her. She felt herself to be under God's judgment. Back in chapter 1, remember the language she used. In verse 13, she had said that the hand of the Lord had gone forth against her. In chapter 1, verse 21, she said that the Almighty had witnessed or testified against her and afflicted her. But here, in chapter 4, the women of Bethlehem praise God. They bless God because they see that the Lord had not left her without a Redeemer. And notice that they say that God had not left Naomi without a Redeemer today. What had happened? What had just happened in verse 13 that the women are talking about? A baby was born. A baby was born. The Redeemer that they're talking about here is not Boaz. It's the child. They're talking about the child born. The Lord has not left you without a Redeemer today. Up until this point, it's Boaz who has been spoken of as the kinsman Redeemer. But here, that term is used to describe this baby boy. And there's, because of that language from these women, they see that there is a sense in which this child would rescue Naomi. This child redeems Naomi. And they pray for this child. They pray for him in verse 14. They say, may his name become famous in Israel. Now we've heard that prayer before, right? Back in verse 11, all the witnesses prayed that for who? For Boaz. They say, may your, may your, may your name become famous in Bethlehem. But here in verse 14, the women pray that this child would be, child's name would become great, not just in Bethlehem, but in Israel, all Israel. Now, in what sense will this child redeem or deliver or rescue Naomi? Well, it's explained for us in verse 15. They say, now some versions say this like it's a prayer. Other uh, Bible versions uh, put it like it's a statement of fact. And I think the statement of fact translation is a little bit better rendering of this verse. But here's what mine says in verse 15. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age. Others of your translations read more like, He will be a restorer of life to you. He will be a sustainer of your old age. They go on to say why. 
for your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. So in what sense will this child redeem Naomi? Well, he'll redeem her by being a restorer of life to her. That word for restore, it's the word return. And in chapter 1, we saw that word quite a bit. That word for return was used 12 times in chapter 1. For example, Naomi was described as returning from Moab to Bethlehem. Remember uh, when Naomi urged her daughters-in-law, she said, return to Moab. And most notably, in chapter 1, verse 21, Naomi said, I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back or returned me empty. Naomi had returned from Moab emptied of all that had made her life full, emptied of life itself, it had seemed to her. But here it is, this child, this redeemer, whom God will use to return life back to her, she who had been emptied of life. And not only will this baby redeemer return life to Naomi, but he will give her a full life. These women say that he will be a sustainer of your old age. That word for sustainer, it speaks to providing sustenance to someone. It speaks of provision. And that was something that was very much in doubt in chapters 1 and 2, right? Naomi and Ruth had lost the men in their lives. There was no one to provide for them. But here the women are saying, this child is going to provide for you. He is going to sustain you. As Naomi continues to grow old, this child will grow up, and he will be that provider for her. Not only will he provide materially for Naomi, but he will fill her life with joy and contentment. Now, why are these women so hopeful that this child will give these things to Naomi. In this day and age, you have a child and you have high hopes, but so often that child falls short of what you hoped he would turn out to be. Well, these women don't have any doubt about this child. And why? Why do they not have any doubt? What do they say? What is the reason for which they say he's going to be a restorer and a sustainer? For your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given birth to him. They're confident because of who it is that gave birth to him. These women, they see this child as an extension of Ruth herself. Because up until this point, who is it that has been restoring life to Naomi? Who has been sustaining Naomi? It's been Ruth, right? Remember back in chapter 1? how Ruth sought to provide for Naomi. Remember the oath that she made to God back in chapter 1, verse 16? She said to Naomi, Don't urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse if anything but death parts you and me. And then when we got to chapter 2, we saw Ruth seeking to fulfill that oath by doing what? By going out to the fields in Bethlehem and gleaning so that she could provide food for herself and for Naomi. And then when we came to chapter 3, 
We saw Ruth uh, follow Naomi's instructions to go to Boaz in the middle of the night. Remember, we, we uh, studied that passage and we found that Naomi was seeking rest for Ruth, but Ruth, as she was following Naomi's instructions, was really seeking rest for Naomi. Because you remember how Boaz interpreted Ruth's proposal to him. We saw that in uh, verse 10 of chapter 3. What did Boaz call Ruth's proposal? Loving kindness. And he said, this act of loving kindness is greater than your first act. You asking me to marry you is a greater act of loving kindness than the first act when you left everything to accompany Naomi back here. So all along, Ruth has been seeking to return life to Naomi and sustain her. And now, in chapter 4, God, through Ruth, has delivered a redeemer into Naomi's arms. Ruth has, very in an ultimate sense, restored and sustained Naomi by giving a child into her arms. And I think that these women are so confident because they see the providence of God in that. They see how Ruth has been striving to provide for Naomi, and now they see the ultimate provision provided through a son, and they, they just know by the providence of God that this is what this son has come for, to return life to you and to sustain you, because they see what her, her, his mother has done for her. Now, these, these women describe Ruth in a very amazing way. They say that she is better to Naomi than seven sons. Seven sons is considered the ideal number of sons. And they say that Ruth is better than that. And that's really saying something considering how throughout the entire book we've seen how the provision of a son to carry on the name is so important. But these women say Ruth is better than seven sons. And we see all of Ruth's efforts fulfilled in the birth of this child. Now let's read verse 16. It says, Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. Now the word for nurse, it doesn't mean a wet nurse. Naomi was old. She was not in the position to do that, but it meant she was going to help take care of this child. She was going to have a hand in raising this child. And again, that is a full circle thing for Naomi. She went out from Bethlehem full with her sons. She came back to Bethlehem empty. But now here in chapter 4, she has her arms made full again with another son. Verse 17. The neighbor women gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse the father of David. Now, we've mentioned this before. This son is said to have been born to who? To Naomi, even though it was Ruth who had given birth to him. And it's probably an acknowledgement of the fact that this child will carry on whose name? Elimelech's name, Malan's name, the name of the dead. So it's, this child is seen as being born to Naomi. And interestingly, in this verse, who is it that gives this child a name? It says the women gave him the name. And what is his name? They named him Obed. Obed means servant. 
And this, the narrator, by saying that the women gave him a name, she's, or he's likely not suggesting that Boaz and Ruth had no hand in naming the child, but instead that these women, by their description of what this child would be as a redeemer, as a restorer, as a sustainer of life to Naomi, by that description, these women were pointing to the significance that this child would bear, a significance that led to the name that he received, servant, by redeeming Naomi and restoring life to Naomi and sustaining Naomi. Obed was doing what? Serving Naomi. Thus his name, Obed. The commentator Frederick Bush, he, he pointed out that the women's naming of this child is similar to what we read of last week in Genesis 38. You remember the birth of Perez, Judah's child by his daughter-in-law, Tamar. Remember when Tamar was pregnant, she was pregnant with twins. And when the time came for her to give birth, the midwife was there ready to help her deliver. And one child stuck his arm out. And the midwife, assuming that he was going to be born first, tied a, a red thread on his wrist so that he would be distinguished as the firstborn from the other child. But then unexpectedly, that child sucked his arm back in and the, the additional child in the womb shoved him out of the way and got born first. And you remember what that midwife said about that, that bossy little kid that came out first. She said, what a breach you have made for yourself. And what was the child named? Perez, which means a breach. So that midwife unwittingly named the child by her description. And that seems to be what these neighbor women are doing. By describing him as a servant, they end up bestowing the name on the child of servant, Obed. Now, according to verse 17, who would this child grow up to become? Well, this servant, Obed, would become the grandfather of who? David, the king of all Israel. And that's something God loves to do, doesn't he? He loves to take servants and make them kings. And as we've been seeing right along in the book of Ruth, we yet again have God, through the providential ordering of these people's lives, we have God preparing us for the arrival of the greatest servant who would become the greatest king. By seeing how these people's lives play out, we are prepared to see how the Messiah's life would play out. And I'm sure you've already noticed one or two of the parallels between the life of Obed and the life of Jesus as we've walked through these verses. Let me spell them out for you. First, you have an extraordinary conception as God enables a barren woman to conceive a son right away. Not only that, but you have a baby being referred to as a goel, a redeemer. Then it is prayed that this child will have a great name in Israel. May, you, may his name become famous in Israel. And this same child is described as a restorer and a sustainer of life. And you have a servant giving rise to a king. Who does that match up pretty well with? The Lord Jesus. However, Jesus far surpasses what this child is described as doing. 
Now let's, let's just walk through how, uh, how those features of the life of Obed match up and are exceeded by the life of Jesus. How about the uh, extraordinary conception? Well, that's pretty obvious. Through Christmas time, this has been drilled into our heads. Matthew's and Luke's Gospels describe God enabling the Virgin Mary to conceive and give birth to a child, the most extraordinary of conceptions. And this child who is born is described as what? A redeemer of his people. For example, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. Remember the angel visits Joseph in a dream, and this is what the angel says. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's redemption. And this redemption is spoken of a child. Uh, Obed was, was, was prayed for that he would become great, that his name would become great. Listen to what the angel Gabriel said to Mary in Luke chapter 1, verses 31 to 33. He said, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Obed was described as a restorer of life to Naomi, a sustainer of her old age. Throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus literally returning life to people as he raises them from the dead. We see him, in a miraculous way, sustaining life. For instance, the two episodes of the people in the wilderness, the 5,000 and the 4,000. Jesus sustained their physical life by providing food for that massive crowd from just a few loaves and fish. But Jesus far exceeds that by providing not only for physical life and physical sustenance, but for spiritual life and spiritual sustenance. In John chapter 6 and verse 54, after feeding the 5,000, Jesus said this, He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. What about Obed being a servant, giving rise to a king? Well, how did Jesus describe himself? Matthew Chapter 20, verse 28, Jesus said, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to what? To serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. And then I want you to listen to what God says of this servant, this Messiah, in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13. He said, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and exalted. So you see those parallels there. And it's, it's not a coincidence that in the life of Obed, just like we've been seeing in the life of Boaz, there are clear parallels between the, the characters in Ruth, the true to life, or these, these real people who actually lived. We see the parallels in their lives as God caused their lives to be lived with the great life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, as the great 
hero in redemptive history is the one to whom all the Old Testament scriptures have led up to. And that is how the great storyteller, God, has been writing out history so that it would work out that way. And we see that in the history of Boaz and Obed as God orders their lives in such a way that it foreshadows the life of the great one to come. This precious son points ahead to the precious son, the Lord Jesus. Now we come to a purposeful genealogy which we read in verses 18 to 22. Now this might seem like a funny way to end a book, but I think that it really gives us a profound insight into God's purpose for which this book was written. As to, it helps us understand why God caused the lives of these real people to be lived out the way it, it, it was. Let's read verses 18 through 22. Now these are the generations of Perez. Remember, Perez is a son of Judah. To Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born Ram, and to Ram Aminadab, and to Aminadab was born Nashon, and to Nashon Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse David. This is the genealogy of Judah's son. Perez. Let's turn back to Genesis 49. Go back to Genesis 49 with me. Because we see there that it was promised to Judah, out of all of his brothers, it was promised to Judah that his tribe would be the kingly tribe. That his tribe would rule in the midst of his people and over all peoples. Genesis 49 This is Jacob blessing his sons, and his blessing is prophetic. How he describes these sons is what will actually happen to them. And in verse 8 of Genesis 49, he gets to Judah. And this is what he says. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who dares raise him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. He ties his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washes his garments in wine and his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are dull from wine and his teeth white from milk. So you see, Judah, it was promised that from him the Messiah would come, from his tribe. But this this genealogy in Ruth, it doesn't list all the sons of Judah. It focuses on one son in particular. Remember, Judah had the sons Ur and Onan, and they died because of their wickedness. And he had a third son named Shelah, But he had two other sons, Perez and Zerah, through this other woman named Tamar. And we find from how God speaks of Perez and the descendants of Perez that it is through Perez that this scepter will come to the tribe of Judah. As you read about Perez in the Old Testament, you find that he, out of all of his brothers, he and his descendants were most prominent, which 
indicates that the king would come through the line of Perez. And that's, of course, what we see. Because who becomes king? David does. From which line? Of Judah's sons, the line of Perez. So you see the fulfillment of what was promised to Judah begin to take place in the ascension of Obed's grandson, David, to the throne of Israel. And that's a fulfillment that will find its culmination in the rule of who? David's greater descendant, the Lord Jesus. Now, I want you to consider a question with me. And I found it quite exciting to, con- to think about this question. Remember, God is the great storyteller because he's the creator and he's sovereign over all things. History plays out as he wills it, as he designs it. Here's the question. Well, let me, let me lead up to the question. If God is sovereign over all things, and we know from Scripture that he is, then that means that everything about how this true story of Ruth played out was orchestrated by who? By God. And that fact is something that the narrator has very subtly but clearly indicated to us throughout this whole book. He's been constantly pointing to the one behind everything that was happened, the Lord God. And here's my question. Why did God see fit to bring about the next child in Judah's kingly line in this way, the way that we've seen play out through these four chapters of Ruth? Why did he do that? I mean, Boaz could have married anyone, right? God could have seen fit to bring about a child for Boaz through someone else, through a nice, well-to-do Israelite woman, like so many others in the line of the Messiah, married and had children through. The Messiah's ancestral line could have still come about through Boaz marrying someone else. You could still have ended up with a king of Israel. You could still have ended up with the Messiah. Boaz marrying and having a child with someone else would not have interrupted the line of descent from Judah down through Boaz and on to the Messiah. From a strictly genealogical perspective, there's no reason why Naomi's dying family and a Moabite woman named Ruth had to be involved at all. They were unnecessary, genealogically speaking. Yet, this is how God caused the next child in this kingly line to come about. Why did he do that? He's the storyteller. He's sovereign. He doesn't do anything arbitrarily. There's a reason behind everything God does. Why did he see fit for Obed to come about in this way? What was the point? Well, when we get to heaven, we'll have to ask God to know for sure, but here is my suggested reason why God did it this way. Let's think through one more time how this servant child Obed came about. Back to chapter 1. You had an Israelite family, Naomi's family, on the brink of extinction. Her husband and both her sons had died, and she was set to come back home to Judah to live out the rest of her miserable days and just die. That's what she was set to do. She said to her daughters-in-law, go back home, I'm going to Judah. She had no hope. She was a dead end. She said, don't come with me. Yet, one of her daughters-in-law, a Moabite woman named Ruth, was driven 
by loving kindness to stubbornly refuse to leave Naomi's side. And she was so intent on not leaving Naomi's side that she put herself under a curse and called on God himself to punish her if she let anything, even death, separate her from Naomi. And this same woman, continuing to be driven by loving kindness, when they got to Bethlehem, she sought to labor in the fields of Bethlehem in order to provide for her hopeless mother-in-law. And then, in chapter 2, we saw Naomi hear the name of the one who owned the field that Ruth had so happened to come glean in. This one was a man named Boaz, a relative of her dead family, a man who had the means and apparently the character and the willingness to possibly redeem her and Ruth from their hopeless situation. So then what did Naomi do when she heard about that? Well, it was Naomi's turn to be driven by loving kindness. Naomi, remember chapter 3, she sought to provide security for her beloved daughter-in-law Ruth by doing what? By coming up with this weird plan of having Ruth go in the middle of the night to confront Boaz and ask him to marry her. She wanted rest for her daughter-in-law because she was driven by loving kindness for her daughter-in-law. But then Ruth, remember these two women were constantly one-upping one another and showing loving kindness. Ruth, driven again by loving kindness herself, followed through on Naomi's plan because she saw in Naomi's plan a way to pull Naomi's family back from the brink of extinction. And so she asked Boaz to marry her. And again, Boaz saw why Ruth was asking. He saw that Ruth was being driven by loving kindness for Naomi. And then what did Boaz do in response? Boaz himself driven by what? By loving kindness acted to bring about the redemption of this family. So how did Obed come about? He came about through an amazing string of one redemptive act of loving kindness after another. That's how Obed came about. So you see, through, through the unique way in which Obed was born to Boaz, the genealogy of Israel's king and of its king of kings has been stamped with the qualities of loving kindness and redemption. Qualities that would not be so evident if, if Boaz had had a son just by marrying some nice Israelite woman. Now back to our original question. Why did God bring about the next child in the ancestral line of the King of Israel and of the Messiah in this way? Well, I believe God did it this way in order to point toward and to prepare his people for the kind of Messiah that he was sending to save them. A Messiah who would be driven by loving kindness. To do what? To accomplish redemption for Jews like Naomi and Gentiles like Ruth. And I think that this understanding of why God did it this way is confirmed by con when we consider the, the reign of King David himself. Turn with me to 2 Samuel. We're going to look very briefly at chapters 8 through 10. 
2 Samuel, chapters 8 through 10. This section of Scripture is quite significant because it takes place between two events. It takes place after God makes his covenant with David, saying, I'm going to seat one of your descendants on your throne over Israel forever. And it takes place before David's great sin with Bathsheba, an event which marked the decline of his reign. So chapters 8 through 10 are the absolute pinnacle of the reign of David. It is the high point of his reign. And in this high point, as you read through chapters 8 through 10, we find glimpses of, of what the reign of David's greater descendant will look like. We see qualities in David's reign that match up with qualities of the Messiah's reign when he comes and sets up his kingdom. So look at chapter 8. In chapter 8, we find David winning battle after battle as he secures Israel's kingdom, which is exactly what will uh, uh, be true of the Messiah. He will wipe out all of his enemies. Look at chapter 8 and verse 6. Look at what is said at the end of that verse. And the Lord helped David wherever he went. And this very statement is repeated in verse 14. At the end of verse 14, And the Lord helped David wherever he went, giving him victory after victory over his enemies. And then, in verse 15, we find a description of David's reign. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and righteousness for all his people. And that is exactly what will characterize the reign of Jesus in his coming kingdom. In chapter 10, skipping over chapter 9 for a moment, in chapter 10 we read of another great victory that David wins against his enemies. But chapter 9 is what I really want to focus on because it's here that we discover another quality that characterizes the type of king David was at the height of his reign and that points toward what kind of king the Messiah, the greater David, will be in his reign. So let me just read this chapter. It's short. Chapter 9. Listen to what David says. Then David said, Is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him chesed, loving kindness, for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul. Remember Saul, the great enemy of David who was trying to murder him until he died? There was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David, and the king asked him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. The king said, Is there not yet anyone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the loving kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is crippled in both feet. So the king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Behold, he is in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel in Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel from Lodabar, Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to Jesus and fell on his face and prostrated himself. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he said, Here is your servant. Now what is Mephibosheth thinking is going to happen? His grandfather was king, and with Saul dead and with Saul's sons dead, who is next in line to be king based on that line? Mephibosheth. But David is king. 
And what do kings typically, typically do to potential rivals of their throne? They slaughter all their rivals. So what does Mephibosheth likely think is going to happen? He thinks this is the end. I'm going to lose my head now. Verse 7, David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show loving kindness to you for the sake of your father Jonathan and will restore to you. Now notice there's loving kindness, there's restoration. I will restore to you all the land of your grandfather Saul and you shall eat at my table regularly. Again, he prostrated himself and said, what is your servant that you should regard a dead dog like me? What does that question sound like? Remember when Boaz first meets Ruth and says, I'm going to give you all the grain you could possibly want. I'll give you access to glean as much as you want. And Ruth said, why have you shown such favor to me? Verse 9, then the king called Saul's servant Ziba and said to him, all that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall cultivate the land for him, and you shall bring in the produce so that your master's grandson may have food. Nevertheless, Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall eat at my table regularly. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands, his servant, so your servant will do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table as one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah, and all who lived in the house of Ziba were servants to Mephibosheth. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate at the king's table regularly. Now he was lame in both feet. What characterizes the king of Israel here? We saw in chapter 8 and 10 his victories, his righteousness, his justice. What characterizes the king here in chapter 9? Loving kindness, which was characterized by who? His ancestors, Obed and Boaz. You see, what Boaz did for Ruth, what Obed would do for Naomi... What David did for Mephibosheth is exactly what Jesus, the descendant of Boaz, Obed, and David, would do and did do in an infinitely greater way for us. The Son of God took on flesh so that he could be our kinsman redeemer. And out of his great loving kindness, the same loving kindness displayed by his ancestors, but in an even greater way, he went to the cross where he paid for the sins of all who would repent and believe in him. And then he rose from the dead so that he would be able to raise us up to life eternal and to raise us up to the enjoyment of his gracious and righteous reign forever and ever. So why did God bring about the next child of the Messiah's ancestral line in this way? So that we would be in a better position to recognize the Redeemer when he came. And as we finish, Ruth, I pray that our study of this book has led you to consider your Redeemer, Jesus, in a deeper way, in a way that makes you love him more than you did before. And if you have not turned away from your sin, and you have not trusted in this Jesus to be your Savior and to be your Lord, you need to understand your desperate situation. 
You are not just a Gentile foreigner like Ruth. You are a criminal outcast before the God that you have defied. You are not just a widow at a dead end like Naomi. You are dead in your sins. You are not just a cripple son of the king's enemy like Mephibosheth. You are the enemy of God, and you are in no position to be able to deliver yourself from his wrath. Mephibosheth, crippled in his feet, could not run from the one in whose life, in whose hands his life was. You are even more helpless before the Almighty God. You cannot run from him. You are his enemy. But the good news is that God sent his own son to redeem sinners like you. And if you want to be redeemed, if you want to be rescued from your sin and from the wrath of God, then surrender your life without reservation to Jesus as your Lord and trust in him alone to be your Savior. And he will save you, and he will bring you into his family, and he will have you eat at his table forever and ever. There's nothing that Ruth or Naomi or Mephibosheth could do to save themselves, and that is even more the case with us. Jesus did it all, so run to him. Let's pray. Father, it's, it's such a delight to see all the different ways that you point us to the Lord Jesus. We thank you for the book of Ruth and how, just in a very unique way, it, it calls us to consider the various aspects of who our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus, is through these real people that you ordered the lives of in such a way that, that by being exposed to their lives, we would be ready to recognize the great life of, of the hero of your story, the Lord Jesus. Help us, Lord, to recognize him as our Redeemer. Help us to trust him more, love him more. We pray in his name. Amen.